Welcome. You found the People of Chattanooga podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today I sit down with Chrysler Torrance. He is a whitewater enthusiast. Um, that's probably understating it. He loves whitewater kayaking um, ever since a young age. He was a raft guide on the Ocoee. And then from there, he moved on to working for a private individual to do uh, private family vacations out west and whatnot. Um, and right now, he's currently heading up Rock Creek Adventures. Um, and he loves, how do I describe this? Um, if there is a plant that he doesn't know what it is, he will find out. He loves flora and fauna. And when you go on an adventure or hike or bike with him, he's constantly stopping to identify these species. Super rad dude. Really interesting conversation. Um, oh, and he also recently graced the cover of Get Out Chattanooga. So let's hear how, let's hear why he did that, how that came about to be. And I welcome you to enjoy my conversation with Chrysler Torrance. Okay, we're live. Hey, good morning. Good morning. This is People of Chattanooga Podcast, and my special guest today is Chrysler. Chrysler, what is your full name? Uh, my full name is Benton Chrysler Torrance, but most people don't know my very first name. I like to leave it as a, an air of mystery. Mm. And why why do you go by your middle name? Uh, as a child of the 80s, it seemed to be an epidemic that parents uh, called kids, mostly men, mostly boys, by their middle name. So uh, Chrysler's actually my mother's maiden name, and I think that was part of their impetus to to have me go by that was my grandfather was afraid he didn't have anyone else to carry on his name. And so since my mom, since her, the name wasn't carrying on through her, they named me Chrysler to kind of keep it going. That's really cool. I like that. Do you know anybody else named Chrysler? Uh, I do know a few other Chryslers. I know some people um, who have it as their last name. Um, through the Facebook world, I met a mutual acquaintance uh, whose first name is Chrysler as well. Um, and I even have some like second cousins who were girls who go by Chrysler as their first name. Yeah. Well, I like the name Chrysler. Uh, it took me a while to learn it. It's not a common name. Not common. Yeah. Okay, so Chrysler, um, thanks for coming on the podcast. So I know you through my friend Nick, and uh, you are an avid kayaker. Um, it seems like that's your passion. Do you want to tell us how you got into kayaking? Yeah, yeah, kayaking's definitely been my lifestyle, and it has been probably the single most formative thing in my life. Uh, I started paddling with my parents growing up. They, uh, they would always float the little rivers and creeks in Mississippi, so I started out dodging sticks and not very swiftly moving current, uh, mostly riding in the front of their canoe. And then my dad had a fiberglass kayak. And uh, like all old kayaks, they were all originally fiberglass. And uh, so I remember just itching like hell from trying to carry that thing and all the little fiberglass shards sticking in my arm. And in fourth grade, I asked for, 
uh, a kayak as my fourth grade graduation present. No, okay, so fourth grade graduation present. Is that, uh, do you have a graduation present for every year of school you complete coming out of Mississippi? Is that what's going on? <laughs> right, right, because they don't expect you to get much past six or seven. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, fourth grade was kind of a big deal because we changed schools. And so it was like I went from the elementary school to the middle school. And I think that's why my parents emphasize that. Okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, wh- where in Mississippi was this? Uh, I grew up just south of Jackson, Mississippi, so a little suburb of there. Okay, do you want to name the little suburb it was? Oh, I grew up in Florence, Mississippi. Florence, okay. But uh, two days after graduating high school, I got the heck out of there and started working as a raft guide on the Ocoee River. Okay. And that was super formative because it, one, allowed me to escape Mississippi. And the other thing was it allowed me to really dig into the river scene and kind of become more of a part of that community and that culture. So when you got this kayak in fourth grade, um, did you instantly know that you loved kayaking and wanted to do whitewater in the future? Or like, how did you get from fourth grade to moving to uh, Chattanooga area and working on the Ocoee? Yeah, um, I paddled a good bit as a kid. We would always do the rivers and creeks around Mississippi. It's like Mother's Day, Father's Day, long weekends. Um, we did a lot of little day trips. And then every summer we would come up to the Appalachians and we would paddle the Nantahala River, one of the easier ones up here. And then we'd raft the more difficult rivers. We'd do a week or 10 days camping and paddling. That was always like our big summer trip. Um, and our, all my first earliest memories of driving through Chattanooga was my dad complaining about the traffic and how this town was always under construction and what a shithole town this was. It was like all the things that I kept hearing as a kid growing up. And now it's uh, it's been my home for more than 10 years. Well, the traffic thing hasn't changed, but um, other parts of it have. So certainly. Yeah. Uh, okay. um, so I heard that your first kayak was pink. Yes. So in fourth grade, my parents drove up here to right beside the Ocoee and picked up a kayak for me, a Perception Corsica S. Uh, S stands for small, so it fit me as a kid, but it was magenta with yellow racing stripes. And it was a real kick in the nuts as a kid <laughs> to be paddling a pink boat. I was like, this is supposed to make me cool, and it's pink. Uh, so that was kind of a disheartening moment, kind of a setback there for a little while. Yeah. And uh, as I got a little older... I had purchased some other kayaks and was paddling those. And then after working as a raft guide and living up here, I was kind of loving my boats to death. You uh, you paddle them hard here, and with our Tennessee sandstone, they break. And so I had gone through a few of my boats and – excuse me um, – gone through a few boats and I was kind of out of kayaks and in college without a lot of funds asked my folks to bring me that pink Corsica up the last the last resort the last resort and it it actually happened at a great time because uh one of the superheroes of the Ocoee River Jeff West was getting back into paddling his old school longboat and had a couple of other buddies I was working with they busted out their longboats one of them uh his longboat belonged to his dad growing up. And so it was, uh, there was like kind of a little herd of us out there trying different things. And Jeff opened up this whole world of how the longboat was awesome on the Ocoee. And we started doing not just downstream moves, but these upstream moves, attainments like, uh, like a salmon spawning upstream using those little micro currents 
and waves and features to try and actually progress back upstream, uh, which was awesome for uh, reading the water, getting more physically fit, and coming to really appreciate the benefits of that longer still pink kayak. Was um, was other people in the kayak- kayaking world doing that at the time, or is this kind of the first time that new style um, an approach to a river was happening? Um, it was definitely an Ocoee thing, and, and Jeff was, uh, I say was because he passed away actually, and in, in some kind of crazy epic untold kayaking story. Um, Do we want to go there? Well, I don't know a ton of the details, and most people don't because. Jeff was diagnosed with a heart condition and realized that he had a limited amount of time left in his life, but he was still a young, super fit, super active paddler. And he set up his estate so that the employees of his uh, ACE kayaking company would inherit the company after he passed. And then he went on a vision quest out west paddling some of the great rivers out on the West Coast, on his way up to British Columbia to run the Grand Canyon of Stikine, one of the North American big water classics, like considered like the uh, the Mount McKinley or the Rainier of whitewater in North America. And uh, he was on a solo run of the Stikine when he passed away. And so no one really knows what happened. It's sort of the stuff of legend, one of those things in our culture that uh is is so uh inspiring and sad but also just incredible was was that um a normal thing for people to do that solo to try solo or definitely not um and part of it i think was he was looking for somebody he had already paddled it once or twice with other groups and he was looking for other people and it didn't fit his time frame or whatnot and so um and also i think without really knowing too much i think he knew that his time was near and like i said it feels like he was on a vision quest yeah wow well that yeah but i was really lucky to get to know jeff paddling mm-hmm. on the ocoee and watching him because he was such an old school person he remembers when those long long boats were the only thing and so he was able to bring about all these moves all these different options all these benefits of being in that longer boat that us younger people had no concept of and so he really blew up the options and helped me fall in love with that boat again that's pretty cool and i'm interested in this uh what did you call that um a, a, it wasn't approach what oh you, uh, an attainment attainment um so how far could you go up the akoi i mean you couldn't go up the major rapids could you so you don't you wouldn't start at the bottom and make your way all the way to the top you start at the top and you paddle down and you can run certain features back up. Um, some of the best ones are like little loops where when you're paddling back downstream, it gives you an opportunity to surf this other wave or uh, boof off this rock. And boof's an onomatopoeia for uh, the sound the boat makes when it lands flat on the water. And so it's like uh, jumping your bike over a creek or off a little ledge. You want to land flat. You don't want to land nose first or mm-hmm. tail first. And so... Um, the best things were running little laps on rapids where you could attain back up. And uh, when I was working as a raft guide, I was driving a bus for some summers. And it was cool because I could put in at the, at the put-in, the ramp with everyone else, paddle down three-quarters of the way down the first rapid, paddle back up, attain back up to the ramp, hit this great booth, this booth called Whiteface, and uh, hit it six or eight times, do the attainment a bunch, and then get out 
carry my boat back up the ramp, put it in the bus, and then drive down and get my rafting trip. But carrying my boat back up the ramp would always get me funny looks and funny questions. And people would be like, oh, did you decide? Did you check it out? Did you decide not to go? And then, you know, you just kind of like nod and keep walking. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty cool. That's making good use of your time. Uh, so you didn't have to just sit there idle while you're waiting for um, to pick up the guys. Right. Yeah, I got you. That's pretty good. Um, what what are some of the more prouder kayak moments you have? Is there any creeks you've gone down that you're just real proud of or, or I mean, are you a water, waterfall guy? I've run a few waterfalls, but uh, the kids these days are bombing off some big waterfalls and they're really starting to add that as like a standard part of their repertoire where um never really got into running a lot of waterfalls i've run a 50 footer three times what was that one called um it's on the south branch middle fork of the feather river in northern california um that high sierra granite makes beautiful rapids and that waterfall is actually called the perfect 50 and uh it's it's really approachable um and that was part of the desire to run that river part of why i ran that one so many times because it was not not foolproof but uh it was a good it was a good way to step up to that hype yeah yeah so that one's definitely one of my shining achievements uh i paddled the food lafu river in chile oh nice um and i spent a winter down there in the winter of oh four oh five and it was enchanting the food lafu is like in the patagonia region so it's really far south um and it has this fantastic international scene there's kiwis there's peruvians there's people from europe and and it just is just like the river is such a draw that people come from all over the world is it kind to of experience it so it's kind of like a mecca in in the, yeah. in the bmx world which i'm part of that's barcelona spain so it's kind of like the pilgrimage once you get into that industry that subculture like you know you need to go there at some point to see it yeah yeah and you know those places kind of shift year after year mm-hmm. uh, there's a new spot in chile that wasn't on the scene when i was going down there uh, Pucón, chile is now like this paddling mecca that all the most of the people are traveling down there now end up there instead of down in the fuda uh, but that paddling the fuda was one of my shining achievements because I was there for about a month and we've been running a couple of different sections, but this one section, the Terminator section, I was walking this Terminator rapid. I'd get out on the right, carry my boat for 10 or 15 minutes and portage this thing. It's a big volume river. It's really large and you can't see very well because the river's so wide, but I was always looking at the Terminator rapid, looking at it and like, trying to figure out how to approach it, how to piece it together. And after weeks of walking this thing, the last day there, um, the other guy with me, we decided to fire it up and, uh, it went really well. Uh, it was a fast screaming, but it was just that sense of working and progressing towards it. And then being able to achieve that goal to kind of check it off. It felt like a real capstone of the trip. And so running the Terminator rapid on the FUDA was, was one of those uh, highlight moments for me. That's that's awesome. Do you have any um, um, plans for your next um, adventure as far as, are there any other creeks or rivers that you really want to get soon? Yeah, I've kind of reeled it back in now. Um, there's a Dirtbag Diaries podcast, which is uh, a really fantastic 
set up, but uh, they have one where it was called growing down. And so the concept wasn't about growing up anymore. It was about kind of like refining what you're doing and dialing in the time frames so that you can fit the rest of your life in while still getting your fix, while still, you know, feeding your rat, getting out there and, and doing what you need to do to, to soothe your soul. And so that's kind of what I've been doing a lot more in the last couple of years is there's so much good stuff around Chattanooga that I know the time frames and I know the crew that I want to go with so that I can bag that adventure, get in my little half day of out in the woods, away from the rest of the world, soothe my soul, and then still be able to be responsible for all the things I've got to do in life to still go to dinner with my wife, those mm-hmm. kind of things. So I've uh, really kind of reeled it in, toned it back. Most of my focus coming up for the next six months or a year is really in my career, mostly thinking about my job. And so I've kind of tried not to to look at the list of things that I want to do, big, yeah. big rivers that I want to check off because I'm trying to shift gears and really focus more on being in Chattanooga. So, yeah, you're still getting your, scratching your itch. Um, but also living a real whole fulfilling, hopefully, life. Yeah, and Chattanooga is fantastic for that in the paddling scene because there are so many creeks that are super close to town. Uh, this is not a good beginner whitewater paddling scene. It is a fantastic advanced kayaking town. The sandstone rock of the plateau and the fact that it's got to drop from the top of the plateau down to the Tennessee River pretty quickly makes for a lot more class four plus rivers you know, we rank rivers one to six, and so though it's on the more difficult scale, it's definitely not a fantastic beginner town. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ocoee is more of an intermediate stream. It's still not a beginner one. Um, out there close to it is the Hiawassee River. Uh, that one is a pretty decent one for learning. It's really wide, and the water's cold, which makes it good for the trout fishing, but not super great for beginner paddling. But we were talking about attainments earlier. Yeah. And one of the funny things is the Hiawassee River has been attained in its entirety from the bottom all the way up to the top. You can paddle contiguously all the way up the entire thing. Wow. How many miles approximately? I'm thinking it's seven. Seven. Yeah. And, uh, the, the whitewater section you're talking about. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the, the flat horizontal ledges of that river make it really easy to put together the moves. I say easy, but it is one of the most brutal things I've ever done. And a kayak was paddling all the way up to Hiawassee. Oh, so you, you've actually done that. Yeah. And, okay. and uh, I did not succeed in doing it uh, without having to get out and portage or carry my boat up and over a rapid. And actually, I had the, the smallest portage of my life there. There was this one rapid that I was trying to get, and and my buddy uh, Lucian Scott's like hitting it. He's like, try it like this, and then he gets it, and and then I miss it, and he's like, try it like this, and he hits it in a different way, and I miss it, and I was like, ah, screw it, and I literally <laughs> popped my skirt, got out of my kayak, stood up waist deep, lifted my boat up, sat it on top of this rock like four vertical inches up, got back in my boat, and then was above that little ledge and able to keep going, but. uh was there any normal civilians um, passing you during this time, kind of looking at you like, what are these guys trying to do? They're going the wrong way. Yeah, there's always people out there floating in tubes or fishermen yeah. headed downstream. And, and uh, you definitely, you know, you'll get those kind of cat calls. You guys are going the wrong way. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But there have been a number of people that have put that together in its entirety, contiguously, yeah. all the way bottom to top. And uh, the day that, that we did it, um, I pulled a muscle in my wrist from paddling upstream so hard, just digging and just 
trying my hardest that eventually something popped in my wrist. I had this giant lump in my wrist and I was like, screw it. We're going to finish this thing out. We're going to the top. And as I was cutting across the last little pool towards the top, there was a bald eagle sitting in the tree up there. They love it out there for all the, the trout that get stocked. And, uh, was paddling, we were paddling kind of right underneath it, and it took this huge dump right next to us. It was like, I mean, it was like eight feet away, and it made this giant white cloud in the water, and it stank like hell. And I was like, oh my God, I almost got crapped on by our national bird. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so those were those are some of the highlights of the uh, the Hiawassee attainment, but it is it's up there with one of the the gnarliest things I've ever done in a kayak. And other people are slaying it. Some people there's they're putting down a like uh, a semi unofficial race time, or people are starting their watch going to the top and then kind of talking it out with other people in the scene. And it's funny because like kind of once a summer or once every other year, it kind of comes around as this thing to do. And people are like, Oh, we need to get back out there and attain the Hiawassee. It's uh, it's definitely uh, a way to make something that is not extreme, extreme. Yeah. Yeah. The, just playing around. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. I wouldn't put that up there as one of my greatest achievements though. No, I'm not. No. I'm not. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite creek just here locally? We have so many coming off the plateau. We really do. And part of that is if you think about different time frames or nah, screw it. The, the best one, my favorite one is uh, the Bear, which is uh, Bear Creek in the bottom of Cloud Lane Canyon. There's, mm -hmm. there's two creeks that come together. You have Daniel's Creek, which has the giant waterfalls on it, which all the stairs go down next to. And then it confluence with, with Bear Creek. And technically it changes names and becomes Sitton's Creek as it flows out. And that's why the bottom of Clowling Canyon is called Sitton's Gulch. But the bear is like, um, I have sexist analogies for all the Chattanooga Creek runs. And I, okay. I joke that she's Miss America um, or she's that James Bond villainess. So she's, I mean, she's just sexy. She's super attractive and beautiful, but she can kill you in a thousand ways kind of thing. Uh, the top of the river is like all bedrock. And so it's all these big old flat, smooth sculpted layers of sandstone and it makes for like tall and steep and precise rapids um, right in the middle of that section is stairway to heaven which is it drops about 50 or 60 vertical feet overall but you can think of it as like three stacked 20 footers mm -hmm. that make it this one really long slide and when you come screaming through the middle of that thing it is you feel like you're going 30 miles an hour but uh it's it's beautiful because the bottom of it, you are so walled in and the vertical nature of all the bluffs around you just, it feels like you're in this cathedral. You're just in the presence of something great. And then two rapids below that is one called Big Bang, which is infamous in the paddling scene around here for breaking backs. Um, it's like a 20 footer with a, a boat, boat and a half width wide landing zone, yeah. rocks on either side. And so you got to be very precise. And that one's really hard to walk around. So it's kind of a like a forced run. You've oh, got, it's almost more dangerous to try to portage it yes. than to just send it correctly. Exactly. Yeah. And so every time you get below Big Bang, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. And, and a few rapids after that, the river really changes character. You get below that bedrock, you get below those tall, steep rapids, and you get into the Boulder Garden section. And then it's more like 
skiing moguls, like stuff's coming at you quick. There's all these moves, all these little things to think about. There's lots of little fine, like it's just super busy. And the, the dual nature of those two different personalities smash into one run. It's short, super approachable, 30 minutes from town. Um, if you've got time or you're motivated, you can drive back up to the top and put on. You can run it multiple times in a day, but it is just such a spectacular place. And it is 30 minutes from downtown. So you've piqued my interest with how you um, have this analogy going with the, <laughs> with the different creeks. Yeah. Can I um, just uh, call out a couple of creeks and you tell me what they are? I don't have analogies for all of them. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Let's do okay. Suck Creek. Do you have so, so Suck Creek is uh, it's over in Marion County. Yeah. And the joke that is that it's a Marion County girl that's about like four margaritas deep oh, looking man. for her next free <laughs> cigarette. So she's rowdy. She's definitely going to be there for a good time. Mm-hmm. But uh, she might sucker punch you when you least expect it. Like it's super fun. It's not classy. It's not what you take home to mama. But every time there's that opportunity to go, you're like, yeah, I'm going to drop what I'm doing and, and, and get out there for that, sure. That makes sense uh, from what I know about that creek with the, the trash and the, the graffiti. And the and road debris. The, the road and like even parking your car in that area has kind of a reputation for don't leave anything valuable inside. Definitely. Um, and that is that creek is one of the most dynamic rivers around. It's had it what has, does dynamic mean for like, like changing? Okay. So we have this joke in, in paddling that you can only run a rapid blind once. Like the first time you're there, if you bomb through it without looking at it, that's it first. But the idea with Suck Creek is that the rapids are changing so much. Each time after a big rain event, it's likely that something will be different. Boulders will have shifted. Uh, this shale layer that's in the middle of the creek there will have eroded and changed or the bluff will collapse and it'll it changes the rapids all the time it's a super dynamic event whereas we generally think of rivers as kind of like staying the same or static and suck creek is the most diverse in as far as every time you're out there you can expect something to be a little different is it the amount of water that goes through or just the soil conditions um, some of it is the geology around there. Definitely. It's got this crazy shale layer in the middle of it. This like dark, soft, um, like before it gets the slate kind of set up mm-hmm. and that is eroding and changing. And so there's this slide rapid on there called Optimus Prime and Optimus Prime is a transformer. And that's kind of the idea is that it's changing and it's eroding upstream. The boulders that make up the sides of it have been, even this winter were pushed down and the whole thing felt different. Like it's got a totally different line a different vibe than it did six months ago so so um optimus prime so all these creeks and rivers have these names for all these features and drops and whatnot um and it seems like there's a little story behind every one i don't know if that's true um but who gets to name these and um is it well established once uh there is a name uh does the name ever change like what who have you named any uh i've not well, sort of name some because generally the first person to run the creek gets to name them. But part of that is how do you spread the word? How do you let the people know exactly. it's called that? And so the rapids names can evolve based on kind of who's paddling there as they change, how it goes. But, you know, it's like all like you look at a, a climbing wall and it has all these different routes and those different routes have different names. And so you take the, the full run of the river those different rapids have different names so that you can have a distinct conversation about like, oh, 
this is the one that beat my ass this time. Oh, I need to clean this one up. Or, oh, we need to go left. And one of the other crazy things about paddling is wood is always shifting. So logs are always what you've got to watch out for. They're, after every rain event, they're new ones. They constantly pop up. And so you got to keep heads up. And so it's good to have those reference points to be able to know which ones you're talking about. Um, yeah, rapid names is kind of a funny thing because it's really it's kind of like who – spreads the word and how it gets out there if it gets immortalized in a book then like a guidebook then you know it's 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 a little more solidified but um on suck creek there's an island halfway down on the right hand side's a a long established rapid name called slow and low and uh it's named after that beastie boys song slow and low that is the tempo and uh it had some rock shift in it and it got all junky and we stopped running it we started going left of the island which I mean, in the first 10 years of me running that river, I'd never been over there. And so it was fantastic that we still had this option. So we started running this rapid on the left-hand side of the island over there and hitting this fantastic six-foot-tall booth over there. And everyone kept being like, you know, the booth on the left side of the island of slow and low. And I was like, y'all, we've been running this long enough that, like, we need to give it – it needs its own name. It's, like, disingenuous to keep referring to it by something else. And so – um, one day I was listening to the Beastie Boys on the ride out there to the river and uh, Brass Monkey came on right before Slow and Low or they're next to each other on the album and so uh, we started calling it the Brass Monkey booth and I think that's it's slowly taken off as uh, and so that would be the closest claim I have to naming a rapid but uh, it's you know it's just kind of whatever makes sense or whatever sticks and different groups will have different reference points for that because it's all about how you like you know express it to your friends or other people you're around you yeah yeah um, one, one more, um, analogy with the yeah. Creek and I want to do, uh, the North chick. Oh man. North chick is the prom queen. So she's classy. She'll make you work for it. It's super pretty in there. Thank God North chick and Margaret Creek Conservancy and the state of Tennessee help protect it. But it is beautiful and it is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum of Suck Creek because it takes a long time. You kind of have to hike in to get in there to, to be able to experience it. So it takes a little more effort. Um, it's long, it's just a pristine gorge. And so in that sense, it is just classy. So, um, you mentioned, um, it's harder to get there. Let's talk about access. Um, how hard is it to get to some of these creeks, uh, with Chattanooga growing more and more property is becoming, um, purchased and split up and subdivided and where do you see that heading and um yeah just talk about access because these gorges are some of the most remote places we have so how do you get in and how do you get out um most of the time you know you have to have a safe place to leave your vehicle because you're going to put in the creek and you're going to paddle away from it um and that's one of the sad things about suck creek is there were a number of vehicle break-ins paddling over there in years past it's finally clean itself up a little bit but um you know it's it's a dynamic situation a lot of times uh generally we look for highway right-of-ways bridges over the river and then you can park on the shoulder of the highway hike down underneath the bridge put on those are your easiest or closest to guaranteed accesses um we're really lucky that uh on walden's ridge on the plateau a lot of the river gorge land is all owned by the state. So Bowwater, the timber company, owned 
a majority of the plateau at some point and they realized that they could just keep the top part, give all the gorges to the state, get some kind of huge tax write off. And so we're really lucky because the Cumberland Trail State Park owns much of the river corridors that are within, you know, an hour of Chattanooga. So that state access is fantastic because recreation is part of their mandate. And so they work with paddlers to be able to access those places. Um, there are certain runs that kind of come and go. Uh, I think about Big Saudi Creek. It was supposed to be really popular, kind of the paddling generation ahead of me. Everyone was like, oh, we didn't run Norchick. We went to Big Saudi. And that was because the access to Norchick wasn't great, but the access to Big Saudi was. And they used to drive into a mobile home park and put in there. And eventually something changed. Somebody ran them out of there. And now we have to put in on the, the highway right away and hike down. And it's just, it's just so inconvenient or kind of trashy that the the rivers the whole run has kind of fallen by the wayside people stopped going there kind of aged out of who knew it and who knew the access and how good the rapids were and now it doesn't get run nearly as much as other things and uh, it's all just because those accesses shift it, it is a really it's a dynamic environment we're lucky to have a lot of that state park land but a lot of the issue really is not trespassing or the fear of leaving your vehicle and it coming back either towed or busted into or having somebody waiting on you with a firearm saying mm. you boys shouldn't be here now have you had that happen yeah yeah that happens for sure yeah yeah um what's the most inconvenient access you've ever had as far as hiking your boat five miles to get to the put in have you do you have anything like that you've done your your worst entry man um we're lucky around here in the southeast. Most of the hikes are fairly short. I've done some paddling in California um, where I've hiked in five or six miles, basically starting at the bottom, hiking all the way up and paddling back down. Um, carrying your boat and your carry, gear. Yeah, and, man. And they're meant to be sat in. They're not They're yeah. not great for being carried. Yeah, how, yeah. Much, how much do they weigh? Um, a kayak generally weighs about 50 pounds, but to, to really – be ready for a wilderness scenario. You need a medical kit. You need a pen kit in case your boat gets stuck. You can set up a mechanical advantage rope system and pull it out and you need a breakdown paddle. And so you're conceivably adding 10 pounds yeah. to that. So you're throwing 60 pounds plus on your back and walking for a while. And they're, they're just generally not that comfortable because the idea is they're, they're built for performance while sitting in them. Yeah. So carrying them is part of the game, but it also is one of my least favorite aspects of kayaking. I'd rather paddle and it's funny because the scene splits on this, but I would rather paddle farther across flat water or bump my way down something than I would throw my boat on my sh shoulder and schlep for an hour carrying it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, now, you mentioned that um, rapid and the bear that you kind of have to do. Mm, big um, bang. Yeah, big bang. Um, have you had any injuries kayaking? I've been really fortunate. I know a lot of friends who have dislocated shoulders um, and come back from it. I know a number of people that have had broken backs and have come back from it. Um, when I was a kid and just starting out, we were paddling the Nantahala River. I just learned to roll my kayak and uh, was running Nantahala Falls, the, like, the end of the run, the climax of it, the first like probably my first class three rapid and I flipped over at the bottom of it and didn't tuck tight enough to protect my face and was trying to set up for my roll and smashed my upper lip and teeth on a rock and so god I was probably 14 or 
So that was one of my worst injuries. You know, I take plenty of little hits to the shoulder or bumps. I've been getting a little brazen trying stupid moves on the Ocoee, which is a really shallow river. And my right shoulder took a bunch of hits at the end of last summer from doing dumb things. But um, I'm actually really lucky not to have a serious trauma. Um, I've had to deal with other friends with dislocated shoulders. And that's the primary kayaking injury. Um, there's a sort of new phenomenon that is becoming recognized in the paddling scene. And it's, uh, it's what is commonly known as surfer's ear or uh, exostosis. And so the exposure to cold water, repeated exposure to cold water is causing these bone growths in the ear canal because the eardrum's trying to protect itself from getting that brain freeze splash of freezing cold water. And so a lot of us in town have had surgeries or I have to paddle in earplugs now religiously because I had an ear, nose and throat doctor be like, Oh, Yep, I see them. You got it. And I've been, uh, it makes you more prone to ear infections. Um, and it can fully occlude your ear canal, causing you to go deaf. But it also, you know, it, it doesn't allow your ears and your head to pressurize. So, like on airplane rides or going up and down the plateau. So, you can really feel a lot more pressure in your head because you can't get your head to pressurize. But, uh, I mean, it, it is just one of those long-term effects. Yeah, it comes is, on slow, and you don't right, really you don't, you notice it. And, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I started paddling, like, nobody talked about it. Nobody wore earplugs. And yeah. now most people are wearing earplugs, and if not, they should. What about um, helmets? Are people switching to full face? Man, the full face thing kind of had its big splash on the scene a little while back. Um, the helmets have definitely changed a lot over the years. They used to be fiberglass with a thing of mini cell underneath it. And that mini cell foam we've learned, um, doesn't actually absorb the impact as much as you think because it's so it's closed cell. And so it will absorb the impact and then retransfer it. That's what I've come to learn. And so a lot of the helmets now are like, um, more like a styrofoam interior with a plastic shell over the top or a fiberglass carbon shell over the top so that if you do take a big hit, it absorbs the impact and will leave it dented. Uh, so the helmets have definitely changed. Some people paddle full faces. I find them kind of obnoxious. Um, and, and reeling it back to the rivers that I know, I don't really feel the need to wear my full face all that much. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that I like, I wipe my nose a fair amount with all the water splashing me and the full face totally gets in the way of that and being able to communicate when you put something in front of your mouth, people cannot hear you. You cannot hear them. And then you add earplugs on the top of that and you're like, screw it. There's no way we're going to be able to talk to each other. Yeah. And you can't even read lips or anything like that. Right. Cause it's fully blocking your mouth. And, and this reminds me, um, I think it's Dane Jackson. Mm -hmm. Um, he, it, tell me if I have this correct. He, um, was born fairly deaf maybe 25% of hearing. Do you know I anything so. about that? Not a I, whole lot. I recently watched a video of him on CNN dropping a banger out west somewhere. Did you? That one's actually in Chile, so that's the okay. second highest waterfall ever run right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you know how many feet that is? 135, I think it is. But in the paddling world, there is uh there's kind of an argument between uh, whether that is considered a legitimate success because he swam out of his kayak at the bottom of the waterfall. Yeah. And some people say that negates the accomplishment. Other people are like, I mean, he had the nuts to step up and fire right. that thing off. And it looked really good until he came out of his boat. Uh -huh. But um, there's been a big debate, you know, just over the last 20 years about whether or not it counts if you stay in your boat or not. Mm -hmm. And what reminded me of, of Dane there was um, – 
he has an advantage he, because he's really good at reading lips. So hmm. when when there's the noise and everything and he's standing at the bottom or the top, um, he can actually read people's lips and communicate with his other kayakers that he's with. So that's actually turned into an advantage with communicating. Um, and, oh, cool. Yeah. So. Yeah, I didn't know that, but I know he's he's definitely the best paddler in the world these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, arguably, Dane or a, a lady named Noria Newman, a French lady, she is definitively one of the top three paddlers in the world right now. And, and it's awesome to see a woman ascend to that kind of level of, of respect and uh, serious badassness in our sport. Yeah, that is, that's really cool. Um but Dane's, Dane, Dane's a local hero, and, yeah. Yeah, so. Dane's local. I mean, he's yeah. uh, Sparta, is that where? Yeah, yeah. Um, Jackson kayaks yeah, about him. up on the plateau. And so, yeah. you know, they're an hour and a half from here. And uh, we'll see the Jackson team, the Jackson family. They'll come down here and run Suck Creek with us sometimes, or we'll see them on the bear. Yeah. Uh, and so it's cool to kind of interact with those guys. And it's like, it'd be like playing a pickup game of baseball and then, I don't know, some – I don't watch baseball. Some famous baseball guy know. shows up uh, and, yeah. and wants to play catch too. You're like, what the heck? Like it's, it's kind of, that's one of the great things about our sport is that, that everyone's after the river more than they are like after the, the interaction with other people. And so you, you end up on the river with some, some of the best in the world. Um, Foster Falls, has that been ran? Yes. Okay. Not by me, but I know plenty a number of people have checked it off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then Chattanooga is pretty good for the waterfall scene. A lot of them are tall. The um, the geology of the plateau. What makes it a plateau is it has that hard capstone upper layer that mm-hmm. made it resistant to erosion. And when the creeks come over that top capstone layer, you get a vertical waterfall there. And then usually the best white water is in the gorge right below the waterfall. Okay. That's where it gets nice and steep. Um, so. There's a lot of waterfalls around here. Most of them are in the 50 and up range, but people are firing them off. I mean, they're getting checked off. They're, it's it's incredible to watch the evolution of the sport go from not just running rivers, but running vertical waterfalls and see the different techniques, the different approaches. And it's like the waterfall running thing is like, if you imagine going off a diving board, you know, you don't want a belly flop. You want a pencil straight in, but having the water falling with you allows it to displace the impact. And so if you can, if you can place yourself fully enveloped in the curtain of falling water, then it will help displace the impacts you hit at the bottom. And so a lot of times now, especially like if you watch that video of Dane running that, that uh, one in Chile, that 135 footer, he rolls off the lip and he almost backstrokes in the middle of it. And he's pushing himself backwards into the curtain Hmm. so that he is more protected. He's more fully covered by the water and so to have that presence of mind to not only control your left and right angle but your up and down yeah exactly whatever all these like uh Different six axes. degrees it's of like, freedom yeah. of movement five, yeah five axis or something yeah yeah and so there's a lot of forethought and then you have to get your paddle out of the way because if you leave it perpendicular to your boat it will smash across your chest mm-hmm and people break paddles, they break bones, they break ribs, doing stuff like that. And so a lot of times they'll roll off the lip, they'll get set up and toss the paddle, tuck it down. But then you got to hand roll up at the bottom without your paddle. Or you want to get it parallel to your boat, put it over there next to your boat. That way the boat helps displace the impact and keeps the paddle from getting in the way. On, on the big ones, will you sometimes throw your paddle last minute yep. out of protection and yep. just 
talk and talk. then hand like that's kind of a strategy that definitely is a strategy the ones where you are much more on top of the water and not fully enveloped in it as you're falling mm-hmm. you kind of people will throw their paddle to get it out of the way and so you do a toss and tuck is there still opportunity around Chattanooga to do first descents or first drops? Is yeah, there? so there's still a few unrun rapids, but they're unrun because they are the cutting edge of what is doable. Yeah, pushing um, the envelope. Truly. And there'll be people who will be like, oh, I think this is a first descent. And then other people will be like, oh, no, somebody ran that back in the 80s or back you know, in the yeah. 90s or something like that. Like, it's definitely like... It's hard to find a full-on unrun creek before, mm-hmm. uh, but there definitely are still drops out there that in the last few years are getting checked off as the first time they've been run. Um, it's It really, with the advent of Google Maps and Google Earth, you saw a lot of that stuff, new things getting discovered and new things getting run in the last couple of years. It's incredible to use that satellite imagery to be like, this looks like it's worth the effort. How much does weather play into kayaking? Oh, it's 100% it. It's um, weather. Yeah, and in Chattanooga, our paddling season is in the winter because the deciduous forest type and the leaves on the trees, they drink up so much water. And so right now, we are right at the beginning of spring. And when these trees start popping with leaves, the two inches of rain that will make the creeks run for three days now will have the creeks running for a day and a half. Mm-hmm. It will, they will suck up so much groundwater that our opportunities to go paddling will really be diminished. And so paddling in the wintertime in Chattanooga is where it's at. And we're always, we're always watching the weather. We're always playing off those, uh, the hydrographs, the, uh, the lines, the track of the flow, excuse me. We're always looking for to kind of put on right after the rivers of Creston. You can get on rivers while they're going up, but it's a much more uh, scary and dynamic environment. And also it's muddier. It's pulling in logs and nasty. And, and that's when the river's really muddy and gross. We're, it's incredible how clear the, the creeks are around here just the day after the rain. If you wait until the river is peaked and then put on after that, the water is crystal clear. And it's really empowering to be able to see the rocks that you know just how much of the rock you want to hit with your boat to create lift, but not to get like stopped by it. And so being able to see through the water is really empowering. Um, but the weather determines all of our opportunity, our options, where we're going to go, when we're going to go. All that is based off of rainfall. And out west, it's all like snowpack, you know, Colorado, the Sierras, that kind of thing. They have a definitive season based off when their snow starts melting. For us, it's a number of hours to a number of days after a rain event. And the last two winters have been pretty much record setting. Super good. Um, so, yeah. That, so, for everyone out there who hates it when it rains every day, <laughs> um, I'm looking at Chrysler right now across the table. He is smiling yeah, when it rains. Yeah, there's nothing but opportunity in a rain event for yeah. sure. I mean, and it's hilarious to listen. Like, last February was pretty funny because <laughs> it rained every Thursday, Friday, Saturday in the month of February. And people were just hating it the social media backlash of all the rain was incredible but paddlers it just set up the paddling scene to be able to hit the river on saturdays and sundays in an incredible way yeah um you can have too much water though there there is definitely an event where you're like well all the normal things that we would go to are unrunnably too high too big and then you start looking for other little drops that well have never been run or but most of those will have wood in them or things like that. And so a lot of times people will make these little project rapids. And so they go out there, they scout the access, they figure out the time frames, they clear it out of wood so that when you get the right conditions, 
You're like, now's a chance to hit it. So they're out there with chainsaws, cutting logs? Or handsaws, or yeah. handsaws, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty For good. sure. And, and definitely, like, one of the things that I want to emphasize is that there are a lot of people who put a lot of work into the river scene, into the paddling community in totally different ways. You know, some people are advocating for land conservation. Some people are advocating for access. Some people are in there literally removing wood out of the river so that when it does rain and it does run, it's a thing to do. And most of that activity goes down August and September. You're kind of like what's fallen in the spring or what's fallen over the summer. You want to get that going, cleared out in the fall. That way when rain starts hitting in the winter, you can actually run the river. If you wait until the rivers are running and there's logs in them, it's too high to get in there with your yeah. power tool. I see. Yeah. Well, um, that was a lot of kayaking. I love talking kayaking because I, I like uh, nature and the gorges and everything. But yeah, there's a lot more to Chrysler oh, than, than <laughs> kayaking. And um, can we talk about how you ended up kind of being a personal um, guide for for the, the big shot guy? Yeah. So um, I worked as what I eventually came to term a concierge river guide Mm -hmm. for a wealthy family and um, I was working as a raft guide on the Ocoee and this wealthy guy and his friends showed up and wanted to go paddling and uh, another friend of mine actually took them rafting and then got their phone number to to kind of communicate in the future and it started off taking him and his friends down the Ocoee and like little kind of individual trips like and we started out rafting and then we got into smaller rafts and then we started doing duckies and it was it was kind of a progression all based around the Ocoee. And then we discovered that he had this palatial farm estate on the plateau surrounded by rivers and creeks, uh, many of which flowing off of his property. And so then it was like, well, there's other options. We can do something besides the Ocoee. There's plenty of other opportunity. Um, and I was working for him part time. Uh doing river trips and things. And then partway through, he was kind of like, well, you know, if you worked for me, we'd be able to do this whenever I had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so um, I went from part-time work for him to full-time work. And I was doing a bunch of property management stuff, apartment complex things, and taking him paddling um, all over the Southeast. He would generally fly in in his jet to a place I would meet them with the gear. We'd have all the logistics set up, a car at the takeout, car at the top. And, like, we'd drive from the airport to the river, put on, paddle to run. Uh, one of the really nice things about a jet is they're required to have two pilots. And two pilots means someone can drive their car and they can drive our car. And so they would take our car from the starting point down to the end of the river, leave it for us, take their car back to the airport, go sit in their plane and be ready to go when he showed up. That's perfect. Would you do this out west? Um, we did a few summer out west trips, but mostly it was around the southeast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, are you still working for him? You know, I pick up a little bit of work from him on the side. We've got a trip planned on the Rogue River in Oregon mm-hmm. um, at the end of July, so I'm headed out there. But it was a uh, it was a long, strange trip for a while. I worked for him for five years, and it was incredible to watch. Uh, his interest in the river, his skills progress, um, and 
his kids started getting older and to kind of bring them into the fold and to see like how the whole uh, emphasis of what we were doing was changing every year. There was sort of a different kind of focus, uh, different rivers we would run or bringing it in more kid like or, you know, it uh, it was great because it was really dynamic. It was really different. But I was also the frustrating thing was I was on someone else's schedule all the time. So I wouldn't know like what was going on this weekend because all of a sudden he'd be like, I'm coming into town or he'd be like, I think I'm coming in, but let's watch the weather. I don't know yet. And so it made it tough to plan my life, but it also definitely empowered me to be able to go kayaking. Cause I would be like, well, I'm keeping my skills sharp for, uh, for, you know, the work trips. Kind of a good excuse. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where do you currently work at right now? So I started Rock Creek Adventures. I pitched to Rock Creek, the gear outfitter in Chattanooga, a guided trips program um, with Chattanooga blowing up on this tourism scene and our uh, best town ever classifications in Outside Magazine. Uh, Chattanooga's really caught on as a outdoor mecca and I saw this niche an opportunity to take people to experience the, all the things that make Chattanooga the best outdoor town ever. Um, and so with Rock Creek Adventures, I'm doing uh, paddling, biking, and hiking trips. Okay. Um, so let's walk through each of those. Um, so kayaking, paddling, what's uh, the paddling trip you have? So um, I'm still at the outset of all this. I just started this this past fall. And one of the tricky things with Chattanooga is all the different – um, land entities and all their different access. Yeah, issues. we have the Tennessee River Gorge Trust, uh, the state land, um, Lula Lake. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, and besides that, also being on the state line, there's Georgia entities, and so kind of being above board and wanting to make sure that all the things that I offered were legal and legitimate. Mm -hmm. It slowed the process a lot and being able to get to the coolest places. I'm working through a lot of those, but um, I've got uh, what I call the heart of the city paddling tour, which is right downtown. It's a fantastic perspective seeing underneath the bridges. And so um, below the pedestrian bridge, you've got McClellan Island, uh, the bluff below the museum. And so uh, putting in and taking out at Coolidge Park there, is the first trip. I'm working on some other things. Uh, Tennessee River Gorge Trust is a fantastic entity and a great partner of Rock Creeks. And I'm working with those guys trying to find the right access and the right style of trip to really be able to accentuate the Tennessee River Gorge. That's my next paddling trip is uh, a Tennessee River Gorge trip. So that will have an in-town where you can really see the city from a different perspective and then to really help introduce the Tennessee River Gorge to people because it's such a spectacular place. Yeah, and if you've never paddled through the Tennessee River Gorge, I highly recommend it. It's uh, There's not too many houses on the side. It's fairly protected. Um, it steepens up, and it's it's a pretty large gorge, and it's right here in our backyard. And, and really have to paddle through it to see it. Yeah, the River Gorge Trust, uh, their whole thing is about protecting the view shed or so limiting that development, conserving the side of it so that it uh, stays a beautiful natural place. And they've done a fantastic job of that for sure. What's the um, what's the hiking trips that you have? Hiking trips are uh, Lula Lake is my flagship trip. Mm -hmm. They um, have been a great partner, uh, allowing me access to their to introduce Lula to people with its limited public access. Um, 
a lot of people in Chattanooga have never experienced it. A lot of locals have never been there because they uh, they don't know the weekends that it goes, or then they realize that oh, they didn't make their reservation in time, and so they've allowed me to have. Uh, not exclusive access because there's other people in there, but uh, access on on non-open gate days. And it is a beautiful place. It's such a fantastic entity packed into a small space. They've got this fantastic savanna-like grassland that I love to talk about. There's a great bluff view that looks east. And then the flagship, the waterfall, Lula Lake Falls is just such a pretty and spectacular thing being in that gorge. And uh, it's really neat because you can get from above the falls to below the falls in five to 10 minutes of walking. And so you can see it from different perspectives and really kind of get a full picture of what is such a, a beautiful place. Yeah. And you're right about the access. I've only been there um, one time in my five years of living here. So yeah, it is tougher to get into. So that's, that's a nice little shortcut. You can uh, do the tour with Chrysler and, and get in. Yeah. I had some, uh, Older people who booked a trip with me the other day, they were uh, four locals. They said they'd lived in Chattanooga for 30 years, and they'd never been there. Oh, wow. And so it was fantastic to be able to introduce them to that and also try and really bring about a greater appreciation, not just of the falls because it's so spectacular. It does it all itself. But of all the other little things, like their savanna grassland out there is such a neat thing, and it's such a missing part of what was a really commonplace thing in Tennessee. Yeah, uh, I've learned through the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, which is a, a fairly new nonprofit that's all about protecting grasslands in the southeast. And there are more species in a square foot of grassland than there are in a forest here okay. in Tennessee. Really? Yeah. And we have seen a super steep decline in all that because of agriculture, uh, you know, filling in, like taking up all the, the valley land, um, fire suppression, which has allowed the tree canopy to fully enclose, shel- sheltering out the light from the ground layer. Yeah. And so, that, that's something that I more recently learned. It's um, forest fires actually have their place. And, totally are a benefit and, in some regards. Right. And we've been suppressing for years and years and years. And now we're just getting wood buildup. Mm-hmm. And, and when it does go down, it goes down. Yeah, it goes big yeah. and bad. And, mm-hmm. and things would burn regularly. Uh, Native Americans use fire a lot, but also uh, lightning strikes. Those kind of things were much more commonplace. Uh, they were just allowed, you know, there was no, nobody stopping them. And so they burned through, excuse me, creating a like 30, 30% canopy cover allows 100% grass underneath it. Or, you know, that whole earthen layer allows, it gets enough light to thrive. And so a lot of the plateau top and a lot of even the valley here was much more savanna-like. And so it was scattered sparse trees. And we know this based on, Early uh, surveyor accounts, they would use trees as their markers. Um, early explorers, the, the naturalists describing those places, they talked about barrens, they talked about grasslands. They would talk about being able to drive their horse and buggy through the forest. And so if you look at our forest these days, there's no way in the heck you're going to be able to do that. But that's because there's all these little thumb-sized, wrist-sized, mid-story trees that would have been burned out had fires ripped through there or also if you think about the loss of large herbivores like bison elk more deer herds they would they would keep those down um bison actually were like a big part of the tennessee river valley um if you look at 
like uh, say the distillery in Kentucky, Buffalo Trace. Mm-hmm. Like it was named that because there were these like bison paths, you know, and bison are actually not herbivores. They're gramivores. They uh, only eat grass. Whereas like deer will eat your bushes, you know, they'll eat little trees and things like that. So anywhere that you have seen historical evidence of bison proves to you that there was enough grass there to sustain that herd. And so it shows you that there were grasslands there. So we've really unknowingly, they're not, I mean, non-maliciously changed so much of what has happened. And that little grassland at Lula gives me a fantastic opportunity to brag on the efforts they're doing and to kind of try and help introduce people to the idea of uh, it's, it hasn't always been like this. And I've, as a, as an outdoorsy person, I've always been called a tree hugger, yeah. but now I'm realizing that trees aren't the only option. There's a lot of other things to hug out there. Um, and the, uh, the power line right away is like the TVA high tension lines yeah. underneath those hosts some of the last remaining grassland species because they, uh, no kidding. Cause yeah. most people would look at those as giant scars going across raccoon mountain and that mountain. It. And there actually is a little bit of, well, maybe a lot of benefit of that being there. Truly. Yeah. There is a fantastic silver benefit. lining. There is a silver lining and, um, there's a, there's a group, uh, like southeastern roadside defenders i'm trying to remember what they're called there's a there's a facebook group that's all about um pointing out these grassland species that occur on the side of county roads highways or along the strips in between uh (laughs) rail lines and highways the uh the railroads will kick off sparks sometimes which would cause more frequent fire than you'd get in other places and so um it's really a lot of People are fighting now trying to keep the highways from spraying herbicides. If mm-hmm. they mowed, then these things can still survive. If they spray an herbicide, then they're decimating the opportunity for some of these little grassland endemics that have been pushed. Basically, the only place they've got left to live is on the roadsides. Wow. Yeah. Um, and this is why it's really good to have Chrysler as your guide for these adventures because he just knows so much about the plants, trees, region, uh, geography, topography, all of this. And sure, you could go out and paddle yourself or go on a hike yourself, but you kind of have blinders on and not knowing what you're walking past. And it's really interesting to, to learn while you're looking at the beautiful views and sceneries and everything. Yeah, it's the uh, it's really the only stuff that sticks in my head these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, one more tour. We have the bike tour. Yeah. What is that? So um, I've got a Heart of the City bike tour, and really it's focused on – helping people see the downtown area, the kind of core of the city outside of a car. And so um, it's on specialized electric bikes. Oh, electric bikes. Oh, man, they're so fun. They give you a little boost. Like you go to straighten your pedal and it gives you a little zoop. It's like it's like a horse taking off from out from underneath you. So so that'll take away the fears of anyone who hasn't maybe ridden a bike in a while, someone that's a little bit older. Can I keep up? I'm nervous. Totally. Like you're going to be fine. Yeah, it really levels the playing field between like college age people and older folks. Like, And it's incredible to zip through town and not break a sweat. You get enough breeze blowing over you. that Even this summer, I was riding them around town when it was – you know, our third Indian summer in 95 degrees in October. And uh, you could still zip around town and not really sweat to death on a bicycle. But for me, it was all about trying to give people another opportunity to see the city and talk about some of Chattanooga's cultural history. Uh, most people don't know that right on the side of Amnicola, like 
around the boathouse area, there was a Native American civilization that was huge. There was They had mounds. It was a giant village site that's pretty much all disappeared with uh, modern age things. And so I like to, I really like to emphasize and talk about that. Uh, we ride through the art district and the aquarium and Ross's landing and over the pedestrian bridge and have time into Coolidge park. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty good route. Um, I do want to go back to your knowledge of nature and you said, you said, uh, this is pretty much all I can keep in my head these days, but how, where did you learn all that? where did you learn everything from? You know, I started out doing a lot of yard work with my dad. Mm-hmm. That was his thing. Like, he really loved his yard. He loved doing yard work. I remember building a greenhouse and then building another greenhouse and then tearing them both down and building a mega greenhouse. And he was really about a lot of sort of exotic species or beautiful things that bloomed. So you had to have that greenhouse to keep them alive in the winter. Um, they definitely enjoyed the native plants, but that's kind of a thing. The emphasis on natives is more, is a more recent thing, you know, more in the last 10 years than say when we were kids in the eighties and early nineties. Um, and so my parents definitely gave me the original appreciation for a lot of that. Um, being a raft guide on the Ocoee, um, I wasn't the most like tell me about your life. Let's talk about your kids, that kind of stuff. I was like, this place is so awesome. I can fill my entire time talking about how awesome all this stuff is around here. And that was definitely what brought me out of my introverted shell was I learned that I needed to be able to talk to people. And my style of it was much more in the informative, let's talk about how cool of a place this is. So that's really when I started like I started taking geology classes at UTC. I started taking botany classes, trying to learn those things. One for personal interest and one so that I could talk to other people about it. And then one of the fantastic benefits of my last job was the boss was uh, a patron of the the PhD scene. And so he was happy to donate money to get people to come look at the farm that we worked on. And so it introduced me to phd level bird biologist these grassland folks um twra style uh wildlife resources people um all these kind of ag extension folks and so they through them i was able to discover a lot more of the readings and things and uh definitely like here in the grassland gospel from uh Dwayne estes the uh southeastern grasslands initiative guy is such a neat thing to totally shake the idea of being a tree hugger and be like whoa what we actually need more of is grass yeah yeah and so it's counterintuitive it really is and and on a surface level it's like yeah you hate to see deforestation and you know that's obviously bad in some places such as the amazon Mm -hmm. but um you mentioned Bowater earlier. There's a lot of land out there that's full of these loblolly trees, and they are not the optimal uh, um, thing to have on on the property. Right. One of the um, one of the crazy things is uh, shortleaf pine were endemic across the southeast. They were they were huge. They were a big thing here. The loblollies grow a little bit faster, and so if you're making pulp wood, that's how they pick loblollies over shortleaf. If you're going for quote saw timber, the mature trees. And the shortleaf actually grow just 
as fast and produce just as high quality as a loblolly. But we still have all these loblolly plantations. And with the suppression of fire, the shortleaf pines, which were the one of the primary pines in this region, are on their way out. If you see a shortleaf now, it's going to be a big daddy. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a big one. There are still shortleaf pine. There are almost no younger shortleaf pine. There's nothing coming back that will be the next generation of them. Um, so one of the last great things I did with the old job was I won a National Fish and Wildlife Fund grant to, uh, well, treat hemlock willie adelgids, the, the invasive bug in the riparian corridor all along creeks. Mm-hmm. I love the hemlocks because they usually, you find those in the rivers that I like to paddle. And are those the trees when you're, when you're on these hikes in some of these gorges, you see they have a blue circle? On, you got on it. Them. Is that what? Yep. And those, and those are on state land. Those means they've been treated uh, typically with a chemical agent to kill the invasive. Um, it looks like an aphid, like a little white fuzzy bug. It's called the woolly adelgid. So you can think uh, you know, white fuzz. How, uh, how successful is that treatment? You know, it has, the state has really gotten behind it, and they've done a great job of implementing it. Uh, the chemical application only lasts like five to seven years, and so it's pretty labor-intensive, and then you have to get back in there and do it again and again. How do they treat it? Well, there's a couple of different ways. You can do a tree injection. You can do a soil drench where mm. you kind of scrape the leaf litter back, pour it around the base of the tree, and cover it back up. One of the scary things about the chemical is it's an imidacloprid, it, which... Um, is a type of pesticide that uh, if it's absorbed by the roots, it goes throughout the whole system, and that's how it kills the bugs that are eating the sap out of the leaves, kills the woolly adelgid. But if it ends up on, say, a mountain marl or a rhododendron, if it ends up in their rootstock, it can do the same thing to them, and then pollinators on those blooming plants can be negatively impacted. So there is a tree injection method where they can basically give it a shot in the bark, there's another option that uh, they call the biological control, and that is introducing another invasive to combat the first invasive. Um, but it's this little beetle, uh, and without knowing all the things, we never got into the biological control. We were all, the boss was a little concerned about that whole like kudzu effect, yeah. you know, doing a lot of harm from trying to do a little yeah. good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't learn too much about it. But what I do remember is that I believe the beetle occurs on the western hemlocks. All of ours are eastern hemlocks. Okay. And so it occurs out in the western U.S. And so they're not that far away as as a, a newly introduced species. But they eat only the little woolly adelgids, the little white bugs. And there are some tiny little beetles that lives on the hemlocks. And so they like they they sprinkle them out on the tree limbs or all that, and they basically only occur in these little clumps. They're, they're not um, super mobile or able to like move from uh, desperate sec you know different segmented sections of hemlocks. Yeah, but and the it, go ahead. Oh well, I was just gonna um, put a pin in that uh, kudzu effect if you yeah. can if you want to tell that story. Oh man, I don't know. Just it's that whole thing of like uh, thinking you're doing some good by introducing something, and then it it spirals out of control. That kind of like butterfly effect thing where you don't realize yeah. the ramifications of a little action. Mm-hmm. But um, I was I started all this talking about shortleaf pine, yeah. and uh, one of the other great things we did was we did a lot of control burns with that Nifwith grant. So. I learned a lot about control burns and the benefits of fire and the way to reclaim a lot of these clear-cut areas. Um, 
one of the farm stands was an old clear cut that had been kind of allowed to grow up totally wild and, and full of briars and and all all uncontrolled and so we burned a lot of it creating more of the grassland savannas to make free cow calories it was all about getting more native grasses to allow the cows to eat those in the summer and we planted shortleaf pine in a lot of those segments that we had burned so that way there is more there's younger shortleaf there's new stuff coming online and uh it's it's crazy to think that i mean honestly like if we have kids our the next generation there will be almost no shortleaf pines in the forest because all the big ones are so tall that as they die off there's nothing there to yeah. bring back that next generation yeah that is kind of sad um let's see what else can we talk about here you got any uh so your new your um your thing with rock creek that's just starting right now um so i usually i ask people what they're doing in the future and everything but it seems like um that is your future do you have any more plans in the future well big uh, goals really uh my big goal is to kind of get this thing off the ground get it going and Mm -hmm. really um try and help introduce a lot of the wild spaces in chattanooga to more people um we also i also took over the rentals department and so we've got bikes stand-up paddle boards kayaks camping gear that's available for rent and so that's easy because then people don't have to make that upfront investment you know if you want to go pick up a new board you can you can drive by pick that up we can put a bike rack on the back to be able to take those bikes with you to somewhere else and allows you to try that kind of that newer that top of the line understand why it's worth making the investment to get that better better bike or better boat that's uh that's a really good thing because all i know i mean all these toys are expensive and Mm -hmm. you can get sticker shock and and maybe just borrow your friend's uh, 26 inch Murray mountain bike from Walmart and say, I don't like this. And you can go camping with the, the Coleman tent and say, I got wet. I, I, why do people enjoy this? So I'm a huge advocate of good gear. And um, so it's nice. You can go rent it, try it out for a weekend, see if you really want to do it. And then you can do the investment. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It gives you a nice entry point. Yeah. Understand why it's, why it's worth making that investment. And to see, like, really, like, you're, you're right. The gear does help make the experience the better stuff. Uh, while it is a lot more, can be totally worth the investment if you're, especially if you're going to kind of make it part of your your personality, part of your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so do you have any um, people you want to thank or any shout-outs or how can people get uh, find out more about you or find out more about this rental program and, and these uh, tours that you're leading? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Rock Creek, man. Uh, I wouldn't be here without them and the opportunity to to kind of partner with those guys and uh, help introduce what I think is makes Chattanooga so spectacular. Is there a website or something you can go to? Yeah. Uh, got uh, If you just type in Rock Creek Adventures in Google, there's a landing page right there. Uh, it can take you to the website or you can book directly from that Google landing page. Uh, we're on Facebook as Rock Creek Adventures and Rentals. Um, so yeah, you can hit us up on social media or on Instagram as well. All right. Well, um, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Luke Schwab. This was really fun. Um, we could talk for hours. Uh, Chrysler's a great guy, very knowledgeable and, uh, yeah, really appreciate you making time in your day. Yeah, man. Happy to do it. I'm, I'm excited to see, uh, your new venture here with the podcast.
Yeah, well, thanks. Well, um, I'll talk to you later, and thanks for coming. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, check one. Check two. Okay, we're we're back. That was a false ending. Um, I took the headphones off, and we kind of slid the chairs back. and uh, Took a pee break. Took a pee break talking and realized uh there's more to chrysler and we want to we want to keep talking yeah i appreciate the opportunity so um let's talk about utc you mentioned you went to utc what did you study there yeah i bounced around between a lot of colleges it was college was a long strange trip but um, i ended up graduating from utc with a bachelor's degree in religious studies and a bachelor's degree in philosophy um and really Mm. uh i like to joke like from uh the movie of brother who art thou mm-hmm. i'm just looking for answers yeah yeah well that's you say that like it's a joke but i mean that's really what philosophy is isn't it man it's uh you know you can you can take a lot of different approaches to it part of it is like understanding an argument like a lot of people use philosophy as a prerequisite to law school oh so you can uh call out straw men and uh mm-hmm. charity and strong manning and steel manning and all those types of logistical yeah yeah you can get into argument structure and and uh and logic but you can also get into um morality looking at all the the different approaches to life and and i was kind of back and forth between philosophy and religion for a while and then i realized that if i stayed another semester or two i just have a degree in both and i didn't have a strong need to move on yet um i saw an opportunity to do a uh a student exchange program. My little brother talked me into going to Northern California with him to go to school, and he ended up not being able to make it work, but he had already planted this seed and this idea, and I, and I discovered that they had a lot of really awesome white water. Mm. And so uh, I stayed in school a little longer so I could go try out another place and uh, and realized by staying in school a little bit longer I could I could double down on, on a degree. Okay. Yeah. And has that degree been useful? In no. <laughs> you know, it's like all liberal arts degrees these days. And of course, I ended up graduating from school like in the midst of the Great Recession. And it was like, Ooh. oh, this was a real, uh, this is not good. Hopefully you're not paying for the burden of debt from that adventure. No, I've done, uh, I've worked the whole time through school and uh, all my summers were working on the river as a raft guide good. and living super cheap, living in raft guide housing, which is like a screened in porch with, with no air conditioning kind of thing to be able to squirrel that away and try and get through school on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, this philosophy and religion studies that you've done, um, even though you're not working in an industry that requires those degrees, has it been helpful in your life? Yeah. You know, it gave me a much more full perspective. Part of studying religion is understanding the culture that it comes from. And so, Excuse me. It allowed me to really appreciate more the different options out there to see all the different religions and why someone would believe what they believe. Um, Cause part of it's just learning about other cultures. That was, that was one of the real neat things was, was uh, seeing all the different options in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We live in the Appalachia, I think. Would you call it the Appalachia? Yeah. Close yeah. enough. Um, do you learn anything about these snake handlers? Do you know anything oh, about? Oh man, do you know anything yeah, about for those sure. Guys? Okay. If, and if y'all are looking for uh, for some more readings on that, there's a great book called Salvation on Sand Mountain that's all about serpent handling. And um, one of the crazy things about America is we offered up all these different versions of Christianity. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Christianity was the primary thing here, but right as America was being formed, um, the Church of England was big, pr- bigly promoted and super huge in, in America as a community building thing when it first started. And then as we started to break away from England, um, the Church of England here realized they couldn't call itself that if it wasn't going to be. So they became the Episcopal Church, but spurring out of that split, America brought about all these different denominations, all these different like flavors of religion to choose from, Christianity to choose from. And uh, within that, you get some really uh, charismatic options. And that is, you get into the serpent handling thing along with speaking in tongues and drinking strychnine and being moved by the spirit. And so... What is strychnine? Uh, poison. Okay, I haven't heard yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, it comes from... Uh, I'm thinking the gospel of Luke. I haven't thought about it in a while. You should look up your gospel, buddy. Figure out uh, if it's in there. I should have that one memorized. Yeah. But uh, it comes from pretty much one passage where it's like, they will take up serpents and not be harmed. They will drink poisonous liquids and not be harmed. And it's saying that, and then those, you will know my followers through these acts. And so, um, some denominations really dug into that and started, using that as a sacrament so like you would take communion as part of this holy ritual well touching them stinky snakes was part of that as well Mm -hmm. um and there's a there's a video that i watched throughout a number of different religion classes going to school at utc um where it's it's a a documentary of serpent Halen and it's super grainy and probably from the late 70s or something like that and uh you can see them literally throwing these snakes around the room from one person to the other there's music playing they're speaking in tongues they're moved by the spirit their eyes are kind of rolled back in their head sometimes and they're they're holding rattlesnakes and copperheads and they are literally throwing them from one person to the other and uh do you know the name of that i don't know the name of that documentary okay um but the book that really covers serpent hell in the area is salvation on sand mountain um, it, it goes into it great. But uh, in the end of this video, uh, the music is kind of stopped and the preacher man is, is uh, got a snake in his hand and he's talking and like, you know, people talk with their hands. He's waving his hand around and as he's waving it, you can see that snake start to get transfixed on it. And dude's just talking and he's waving that hand and boom, he lights out and gets bit right at the end of this documentary. And uh, as the credits roll, it shows that he ended up dying from that oh wow that bite and one of the things is they don't seek medical attention generally because that would be uh the idea is that your faith should be enough to carry you through that would be uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh against your belief system but um a lot of times supposedly you would see uh like a church would advertise that they do this in a subtle way on their church sign it would say signs following and it's like these signs from the gospel that's their little undercover because in most states it's illegal to yeah, I think do so. that. I think I could be wrong, but somewhere in North Carolina, West Virginia, maybe there's what? one state where it is legal yeah, and there's know. an open church still doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, other than that, it's kind of on the underground and I think it's going out. I don't think it's becoming more popular. Yeah. I, I wouldn't think it's becoming more popular. Yeah. Uh, what other religions did you study? Oh man. At one point I really, 
really got into Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of that was the fundamental tenets of Buddhism. So Buddhism more is a philosophy than is like an actual worship of the Buddha. And so Buddhism was cool because they have all these different like the uh, paths, the Noble Eightfold Path, these different like things, actions, prescriptions to follow. Um, but it was really about more of like a reserved attachment, like not not letting things get to you, like just that sort of peace that you think about when you think of the Buddha. Uh, so I really got into Buddhism for a while. Um, Hinduism was super fascinating. Um, they have so many different gods or so many different options. And one of the crazy things, Hinduism super old. And what they realized was instead of like killing off the people that didn't believe the same thing as them, they just be like, Oh, you're just part of us too. And they just swallow that up. They just be like, Oh, you're one of us. And they just, they just bring it in. They even did the same thing with Christianity and all that. They're just like, come on in. You're part of the fold. That's just one of the other options we've got. It was, uh, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I got into Judaism, obviously studied Christianity, um, but the Eastern religions were always like just mind blowing to look at because that's something that's much more uh, foreign, not mm-hmm. something so culturally ingrained in us that it was just super intriguing because it was something that I wouldn't have come across otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Taoism is pretty groovy because they get into um, a lot of the philosophy similar to, to the philosophies of, or the things I take away from the river life kind of like actionless action like moving that path of least resistance like you have to push and progress but but don't like you know go go with it when it's easy um but one of the the big takeaways that i got from studying religion for so long was that you really if you believe something then you have to act on its behalf and so with studying religion and falling in love with the river so intently i realized that in in my day job as a raft guide of like preaching that river gospel telling people like why they should care why they should why they should vote why they should donate why they should make the effort to preserve and protect rivers that i realized that i was evangelizing for the river community and i realized that so many people are like oh you know part of the river community will be like the river's my religion or they'll be like, oh, I'm going to church on Sunday. And they mean they're, they're going paddling. Like that's become a much more common thing is people uh, on the river will yell church. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, because they, uh, it's easy to find your community in that sense. And so in that sense, it is like a congregation, like one of the benefits people get from church. There's community. There's other people that you know you can depend on mm-hmm. if you need something. Yeah. But one of my big takeaways was that I needed to do things to – to to help the river to like if it gives me so much joy and so much appreciation i needed to work to try and help further benefits to the river or to Mm -hmm. nature and to give back and all that kind of stuff yeah so it uh it's part of what spurred me towards much more of uh work in conservation and i was really lucky that the last job i was able to evolve and do a lot more conservation work through them a lot a lot you know, introduction to a lot more land conservation. And then you got to rub shoulders with uh, 
the the grad students and the people doing uh, the research and some really high end people that really know their stuff. Yeah, lots of people that were that were great for the information. And I got introduced to uh, the Nature Conservancy. Uh, worked with the Nature Conservancy on uh, designating Soak Creek a state scenic river. So Tennessee, like the federal government, has uh, scenic rivers, rivers that they consider worthy of a distinction of preservation. Tennessee hadn't had uh, a new scenic river in about 20 years. And Soak Creek was a creek next to one of the farms that the boss owned. And we advocated uh, with the Nature Conservancy to getting it included as Tennessee's newest state scenic river. And uh, we were eventually successful at that. And that was... And were you the, the headliner of that project? Uh, no, definitely not. I kind of played a middleman role. And one okay. of the funny things was uh, we were talking about cutting wood out of creeks earlier to, to make them safe and make them passable, make them usable. And my job with the, the Soak Creek designation was really in the beginning was introducing it to the boss so that he could use his funds and his influence to help get that designated and so uh started out paddling that creek at low water and cutting trees out of it and introducing him to it getting him down the river and helping foster his appreciation in it so that he would then see the opportunity to uh you know donate and to influence to get it uh, a state scenic river that's really cool um yeah you you were the middleman um you didn't have all the money in the world to do what needed to be done but you knew the person that did and yeah then, and that wasn't even my idea really a uh -huh. lot of it was his idea after paddling it and then kind of like keeping it going and then we partnered with the nature conservancy mm -hmm. uh, and they were a fantastic partners part of the as it was starting to progress and we were realizing there was a likelihood that it might get passed we actually did a river trip and took uh, the nature conservancy folks, the people that were the boots on the ground, the ones making the efforts down the river so they could understand what they were working to preserve and to help develop their appreciation for it. That's really cool. So yeah. it probably wasn't white water then. It was, it was this yeah. Is, is it white? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so do those people kayak white water? They, uh, they rafted. Raft? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So and they the, could just kind of watch and you would guide them down? Yeah, the river, it's small, it's rocky, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have a very long runnable window. So a lot of stars aligned in a pretty magical way. Uh, to allow us to take those Nature Conservancy guys down the river because it's, you know, you can't just be like, well, it rained today. Everybody drop what you're doing. Let's go. Yeah. You got to plan out yeah. ahead a little bit and uh, to gamble on hoping that that rain event would get us enough, that it would uh -huh. work. And and so, um, and when people raft, like they have to play an active participation in it. Like it's team building in that sense and that it, it takes all of you working together to get down the river, especially when it's uh it's tight and it's technical and, and you, it's low volume. Lots of little rocks to get stuck on. So you have that physical sense of accomplishment, getting just getting down. That's bonding, mm -hmm. and that can potentially go over into the paperwork side of things and the office things. So okay, that was a good experience. This is real. Let's let's now do the uh, the boring office stuff that we have to do to to make this work out. Exactly. Yeah. So we we kind of helped. Uh, keep them interested in the project yeah. and progress for it. Yeah. And, and that was the first um, scenic river in 20 years, 18, 18. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Are you working on doing that again or, uh, yeah, I have a hope to work with, uh, 
North Chickamauga Creek Conservancy on designating North Chick a state scenic river. There's, uh, I have a belief that all of the rivers on Walden's Ridge that are pretty much all those bow water land ones that we were talking about before, there's yes. a ton of those state, uh, the Cumberland Trail and the Cumberland Trail State Park encapsulates a large portion of all these beautiful rivers on the ridge. And I don't understand why what's already preserved in the state park is not also a state scenic river. So what's the, can you tell us what's the differences between a scenic river and uh, a state park? Yeah. A scenic river doesn't own the land that it is on. Whereas a state park is land owned by the state. Um, in Tennessee, there are three different classifications of state scenic rivers. Um, Soak Creek went as uh, type three, a developed one, even though it is still like a really undeveloped river corridor. We knew that that would be the easiest push. Um, there's a developed river corridor. There's a pastoral one, which basically means, you know, farms and fields and that kind of thing. And then there is a natural one. The, the highest classification is like an undisturbed river corridor. And that's what I think a lot of the state park, a lot of the Cumberland Trail State Park creeks should all be because they are owned by the state. They are in this beautiful, protected, sheltered space. And it, it seems like, I'm like, how has nobody done this already? Why hasn't this happened? So um, I've been working with the North Chickamauga Creek Conservancy. Uh, we've been talking over some of the ideas and taking uh, the Soak Creek presentation and kind of mad libbing in the, st the stats and the, and the facts and figures to make uh, North Chick that similar thing. Where are you with that project currently? Is it the very beginning? Or? Yeah, not the very beginning. We are part of the way through that. Okay. Um, so we're making some small progress on that. Um, yeah, you know, we're progressing, but uh, like I've learned with all conservation things, years are what is involved, not uh, not months or weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what about the Lookout Mountain Conserva Conservatory? Okay, so uh, I live in San Elmo, and... I loved walking my dogs and hiking the trails that connect St. Elmo to Glen Falls and the Chickamauga Chattanooga National Military Park up there. And so I discovered a few years ago that all of the land that the trail was on and that I was frequently walking from looking at the city GIS maps, all that was owned by uh, an investment group that was tied to Green Tech, the developer that... Uh, is generally not looked at favorably by many people. Um, and I kind of have a negative opinion of them because I've had two different friends that have had to take legal actions against them from destructions of their private personal property from Green Tech building houses adjacent to theirs. So I had this panic mm -hmm. that Green Tech owned all the land that we were trespassing on. And they're a developer. And so that 60 something acres could potentially be houses and houses made by someone that I didn't feel would do a good job of it. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I mapped it out with a uh, GPS on my phone, sent it to a local, um, map maker friend here in town. Uh, one of my kayaking buddies makes maps for a living. And I sent him that and was like, Hey, can you put this over the city GIS map? And he's like, easy peasy. So he gave me what I needed uh, info wise and I approached Lookout Mountain Conservancy to say hey look this looks like it's in your mission we'd love for this trail to be maintained 
what do we do here? And uh, that was three years ago. Um, my friend Debbie Sue and I took uh, Robin Carlton from Lookout Mountain Conservancy and Bruz Clark from the Lindhurst Fund, uh, one of the great philanthropic organizations in town, on a hike on this property. And they were like, yeah, this is great. This is exactly what we want to do. Um, and then from my perspective, it seemed like nothing happened for uh-huh. a real long time. But like I said, the wheels of progress turn really slow. Robin with Lookout Mountain Conservancy was making progress in her relationship with Green Tech and talking to them and with the uh, the cities. There's people pushing for a steep slopes initiative to limit development on steep hillsides, primarily impacting North Chattanooga, St. Elmo, those kind of places, Mountain Creek Road, that kind of thing. And... Um, Green Tech, through some reason, maybe that, maybe some other investor things, decided that it was no longer tenable to to try and pursue building on the acreage on Lookout Mountain and offered it up to Lookout Mountain Conservancy. And uh, so we had, they wanted to close by the end of last year, 2019, and we had about a month to come up with 275K. That's how much they wanted for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it appraised all the different mm-hmm. little lots, appraised that amount. So it was a fair ask. Um, and it was a quick scramble to try and figure out how to raise funds. Um, foundationally, Lindhurst and some other of the big organizations kicked in a lot, which was fantastic because it got us to an achievable amount. Um, I started out with this idea of like, well, I mean, I can do hikes, like I know how to lead hikes and talk and try. And I was really just trying to introduce people in the neighborhood to what is such a fantastic neighborhood entity. And that spiraled out of control in all the best ways and ended up, uh, had this little festival fundraiser in San Elmo Park. Uh, we raised $12,000 to uh, to contribute to that fund, which when you're thinking we needed 275K, it's a drop in the bucket, but it did help it, spread the word. It helped spread the word, yeah, because all those people donating uh, can talk about that story. And you never know. There might be some angel investor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some guy that's got money that uh, he might do the 20000 or the 30000 donation, you know. Yep. So, like you definitely need more people to know about this than less people. And that's where you did. You put on that event and you got 12,000, but that could lead to more. Yeah. And, uh, that definitely was what Robin with LMC was implying. She was saying that, uh, just by spreading the word, it, uh, it definitely helped get us there. And then sure enough, by the, the last day of the year, we had achieved our fundraising goal and there's been a bunch of, you know, tricky things that go down with purchasing something that large. There was a bunch of title work that they had to do. And uh, we, they were supposed to have signed the contract uh, two days ago and we're supposed to close by uh, early April. And so it is, it's pretty much a done deal. It's pretty much official. We got 65 acres and a preserved trail system on the side of Lookout Mountain. Wow. That is fantastic progress. Very impressive. Um, It also made you noticed on the local magazine Uh, well what's what's going on with that (laughs) so through having the event and trying to get people to to show up and trying to spread the word i reached out to uh the times free press and uh was introduced to a reporter there uh, a lady named jennifer and we were talking about that work and all that effort and she interviewed me 
talking about kayaking, about the land conservation deal, and really started with this work with Lookout Mountain Conservancy. And uh, I went in and did a little photo shoot to promote the article. And I got a text a little while later being like, so you're going to go on the cover. We're thinking we're going to put you on the cover. And uh, I'm now on the cover of the Get Out Chattanooga magazine for, for this quarter. And uh, it's been uh, a real honor and also a little a little funny and a little humbling. I've been getting uh, some good ribbon from all my homies oh, who, yeah. who go kayaking and and uh and it's hilarious watching different people find it and send me send me pictures and be like, I know this guy. Mm-hmm. It's come full circle from when fourth grade you got that kayak, that pink kayak. <laughs> and uh, here you are. How old are you now? 35. Here you are, 35. I'm assuming this is your first cover you've gotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're in. It's a fantastic photo. He's in his. I've seen it. You should all pick it up. Um, he's in his kayak skirt and the paddle and the gear. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, one of the... Uh, one of my saving graces for that is one of the things I think is best is that I got dressed at the Times Free Press in the in downtown, like in the studio there, put my kayaking gear on and uh, took my helmet and my elbow pads off, got in the car, went straight to Suck Creek, put those things back on <laughs> and ran the river. <laughs> oh, man, in true fashion, you didn't even have to. De- you were already prepared. I was already geared up. And yeah. I was like, and that was half the joke. And I was like, all right, guys, I got this time frame. I'm meeting the bros at the creek. So yeah. so let's knock this thing out. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, you're going to be on the cover. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you're the real. That's the definition of the real deal there. That is not a poser. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Man, Luke Schwab, I really appreciate this. It's been great. Okay, because we, we can only do two endings. I, we sh- probably should do a third. So. <laughs> no, no, I'm all set. Okay, yeah, this is yeah, good. But, uh, but truly, y'all, if, uh, if you're into something, especially in the outdoors, make the effort to figure out how to be involved and how to, how to help preserve it for future generations to en- enjoy it. So um, do what you're passionate about and try and get other people passionate about it. And... Uh, try and leave a lasting impact because you never know like you know three and a half years ago when I started that conservation project I had no idea that it would actually I had absolutely no hope that it would actually happen but you still tried yeah I I was still like was like well start somewhere we'll see how it goes and then in the middle of it I spent two years thinking well that didn't go anywhere what's my next project Mm -hmm. and uh things things will surprise you they'll come out of the blue and all of a sudden some things will work out that is fantastic advice to end on. And you obviously can hear the excitement in Chrysler's voice when he talks about nature and these projects and whatnot. So um, great example for all the listeners. And thanks for coming on the show once again. Thanks, Lou Schwab. All right. See you. Bye. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Chrysler Torrance. One more rad dude to uh, stop and say hi when you see him running the trails on Lookout Mountain. He's out there all the time. He puts in work. Well, if you like the show, rate it on iTunes. really helps me. Spotify. It's on Stitcher. Google Podcasts. Maybe YouTube. Maybe Facebook. Definitely Instagram. But that's it for the week. We'll see you next Monday. Bye.